0: this morning's sermon is let it be so let it be so when you're thinking of a title like that in physical terms or in the physical realm there are many things that you've learned and accepted as true from various reliable sources and when I say from various reliable sources of course that's reliable from your subjective perspective So you've learned a number of different things that you've come to accept as true from a number of different sources that you deemed to be reliable. And there's lots of examples of those various things that you learned and you came to personally accept as true. Now, what were some of those sources? Well, parents very often were impacted greatly by our parents and why. Some of that has to do with just... The amount of time we spend in close proximity to them as young people so the people that you spend the most time with there's the greatest opportunity for them to rub off on you and so that's just mathematical in some ways and so parents are often the source of many of the things that we've learned and come to accept as true there's teachers people that were influential like teachers and coaches in your life that you learned things from and that you came to accept what they were saying as true there are other sources like friends another source that came to my mind when I was thinking about what are some of the sources of things that people in the physical realm have learned and come to accept as true one of them I couldn't help but thinking of was the school of hard knocks personal experience Now again, that's only as valid as your interpretation of that experience. So very often you'll have an experience and the thing you should have learned is completely different from the thing that you did learn or come to internalize from that. Perhaps there was a completely different lesson that should have been learned from that experience, but in fact you took something completely different away. And An example of that would be perhaps you're the type of person that wanted at a Older age than what is appropriate Try to learn something that would be considered Sort of hazardous or reckless In my case that was wakeboarding Now if you're not particularly athletic or coordinated That can be hazardous And the older you get the more hazardous something like that is So as I attempted to jump across the wake On a wakeboard I ended up smacking my head pretty hard a couple of times Now, the lesson that should have been learned from that was you're too old to wakeboard. The lesson I actually learned was wear a skateboarding helmet when you wakeboard. (laughs) That's just a silly example, but there's plenty of things that you should have learned from the School of Hard Knocks and you got the wrong message. But as you think about those things that you learned through whatever source you determined to be reliable, and then you internalized it, you accepted it as true. With a lot of those truths, though, they took the form of principles. They took the form of um, principles to live by or rules to live by in your life. It wasn't just data points. It was principles or things to live by that you picked up from other people and you thought, I really agree with that. I agree with that manner of living or that rule to live by or that principle that I learned from this reliable source in my life. And many of those truths that you internalized, you now desire to apply to your life or you aspire to live by those principles or that manner of living or that, or that point of point of living that you had learned from somebody else. You said, that was desirable. I agree with that. I want to fashion my life in that way since I've learned that thing that I perceive as true from that person. But isn't it true that though you may desire or aspire to live a certain way or apply a certain manner of thinking or living to your life, and I'm talking about the physical realm here here still, isn't it true that practically speaking that isn't always the case, that your best intentions fall short? that even though you desire to apply that principle to your life you're unsuccessful in doing it consistently or not as often as you want to so that all of the desire and all of the knowledge and all of the information and all of the internal acceptance as true of some manner of living or principle or truth when you when it comes time to apply it to your life there's a disconnect between your mental desire and the practical application of that desire to your life. And so there's many things that you sought to emulate in other people that you thought were good principles or good qualities that you saw in them and and you had a great desire to be like that or to emulate that or have that be true of you and you just can't seem to do it. You can't seem to have a connection between your desire and the practical application. Well, that's absolutely true In the physical realm of many things that we aspire toward, for some of us it's something simple. We see that the neighbor keeps his yard really tidy. And we say, man, I think that's a principle worth living by. That's a good thing. I'd like to keep my yard very tidy. But as my son experienced recently, lawn mowing seems like it would be a lot more fun than it actually is i have to I have to tell this story. You know how when you're young, just something with a motor it's got a rumble to it, you pour gasoline into it, there's this cord you yank on, and just the the interest and the fascination in something mechanical, whether it be a chainsaw or a lawnmower or a power washer or whatever it might be, as a child, it seems like that would be so much fun if I could just get my hands on that thing. And my son grew up thinking that about the lawnmower. And so finally the time came here this summer where I thought, you know, he can actually get his hands up on the handle and he's not having to push the crossbar that he had, that support bar that he had been pushing before I let him try a couple times. I'm going to let him mow this lawn. And he did. And he had a song in his heart about it, a joyful song in his heart. And he was so thrilled to do it the first time. (laughs) I offered him the opportunity to do it a second time, though. And he said, no, Dad, that can be your job. (laughs) We aspire to things, though, that we're not, we mentally wish were true, that ultimately, oftentimes, they don't end up being true practically or consistently. And so now I was talking about the physical realm, but you make that same correlation or application to the spiritual realm, and that's often the case too. You've learned many spiritual truths and principles. There's not one person in this room that doesn't know at least probably one spiritual truth or principle. It doesn't matter if you've even been to a church or heard the Bible before. Many spiritual truths and principles have permeated into our society and so that many of the things that people hold up as noble or good, oftentimes they can find their source in the Word of God, actually. That used to be more true than it is now, but it's still true. There's things that people hold up as desirable that in fact are principles or qualities or truths that were communicated from God and his word and that person may not even know that the source of that ultimately is God himself. Point being, no matter who you are, you know some spiritual truth or principle. You've learned it. And without exception, you've accepted some of those things as being useful and true and appropriate and had even a desire to apply them to your lives. But inevitably, there's a disconnect at times between our desires and what we know to be true and the application of those desires. And that's what this letter has been about. We're wrapping up the book of 1 John, Lord willing, if I make it through here. We're wrapping up this, this book here today, and John has been spending this entire letter trying to basically communicate that principle He's exhorted or been wanting to exhort to these believers. He's been trying to encourage them to live life in a manner that is practically, presently, and experientially consistent with truth that they learned previously. So he's saying... Live your lives, allow your lives to be a reflection of the truth that has been communicated to you by me. I learned that truth myself from Jesus Christ himself and through divine revelation in some instances, but most, for the most part from Jesus himself as I lived life with him and was taught by him directly for three years. John says, I wanted to present to you everything that I learned to be true about God himself through either my knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures or my personal living life with Jesus Christ, in addition to what, again, the Spirit of God had communicated to him besides that. But he said, I've been wanting to communicate those truths to you and I've spent a lot of time trying to communicate those truths to you, but it's the truths in and of themselves won't help you you unless you can get to a point where those truths are being applied in your life on a practical, present, experiential type of a way. And so he's been trying to say that over and over, but he's not focused on the full breadth of all Christian truth that a person could know or could focus on or every principle. He's tried to make it digestible. He's taken this entire letter and tried to focus on one specific Christian truth, one specific Christian principle, and that is that fullness of joy or real joy can only be found through intimate fellowship with the Father. And he's been telling them, you know that is true. You've been given this opportunity to live life experientially and intimately with the Father in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment type of a way. You know that that is God's desire for you. He wants to live life with you. He wants you to experience fellowship with Him. And as a byproduct of that, He then wants to work through the power of His Spirit in your life to make your life something that would have eternal value. That would count in light of eternity. He wants to change you. He doesn't want to just give a little bit of a facelift to you. He doesn't want to put a a fresh coat of paint on you. He wants to start from the ground up and he wants to remake you into the image of his son. He wants to transform you. To be transformed doesn't mean to be prettied up with a fresh coat of paint and a new area rug and a new set of furniture. It means tear the thing down, turn it into something it wasn't before. And so John has been saying, I want you to focus not on that. That's going to happen as you live life in fellowship with Him. Don't get confused by the rest of it. Don't get caught up with or distracted by some of those other things. Those things will be true. That manner of living will be consistent with God's Word, with God's will, with God's plan, with God's purposes for your life if you will live life in close, intimate fellowship with God. If you'll include him in your life and your thinking, that's where it starts. And if he's included in your life and your thinking, you're you're looking onto him, you're involving him in the things that you're doing. You're allowing him to permeate your thoughts. And as your mind is fixed on him, as your gaze is fixed on him, then his spirit is going to be able to be free to work within you as a channel for him to do his thing so that your life would then be a life that would be well-pleasing to him. But he said, I haven't made this letter complicated. I'm just telling you over and over and over again that apart from intimate present fellowship with the Father, life has no meaning or purpose or joy. The only way to have meaning, purpose, and joy and direction is if you're going to live life with Him. And then he went through plenty of different examples of how easy it is to be deceived about all this. How easy it is to think that spiritually speaking, you're in a good place when, in fact, you're not. And he gave many litmus tests or different ways to identify if this is presently true of my behavior, my thinking, my actions, my words, my deeds. If these types of things are true, a few examples were if I'm if I'm currently living in unrighteousness, could that be a, a manifestation of God's Spirit directing me at a particular point in time? Of course, the answer is no. How about if I'm presently hating my brother? If I'm, if I'm presently clinging to bitterness and resentment and, and, and unforgiveness in my heart? Is that the kind of thinking or behavior, words, thoughts, and deeds that the Spirit of God would produce in my life? How about if I have, and he gave some material examples, material and, and spiritual, but how about if I have plenty but I don't have enough compassion or love for my fellow believers to invest any of that in their lives. Is that a mindset and then correlating behavior that is consistent with the Spirit of God directing and leading in my life? And we talked about what were some of those resources that you could be flush with that another believer might lack. We talked about how in this country, very often it's not necessarily physical things. Very often, Almost everybody has a roof over their head. Now I'm talking about this little niche area that we live in. That's not true everywhere. It's not even true in Virginia. Uh, But it's true most places. When you look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, it's not generally the case that they're getting rain pouring on their head at night unless they're sleeping at my cabin and then there's a leak by the chimney. Generally speaking, There's so many clothes available that people discard them. They leave them behind. They donate them. Buy the black plastic bag full. You know what I'm talking about. Generally speaking, it's not an issue of being able to have a little bit of sustenance to get you by. I'm talking about the bare minimum for survival. That's not really the issue for most people. But what do we talk about other things that you could be flush with that another believer Might have a need for. Remember that message? How about you're flush with the ability to live life with them? You're flush with the ability to provide them with some relational interaction that they're lacking. They feel all alone. They don't have anybody calling on them, they don't have anybody looking into how they're doing, they don't have anybody who's asking them to get a cup of coffee. We're asking them if they want to get together or do something. And oftentimes, because our lives are so busy, we we imagine that everybody else's must be full of human interaction, that everybody else's must be full of social opportunities. And very often, that's not the case. Very often, there are people that are quite lonely. Think of other things you might be flushed with. Maybe you could attend to somebody's emotional need by just being an ear that could listen to what it is that they're going through. So it could be any number of different things. How about their spiritual needs? Perhaps you're in a place, those who among you are spiritual. Now at any given time, that could describe any one of us, right? We're not always in fellowship. We're not always walking by means of the spirit. We're not we're not always allowing God to have his way with us. So at any given time, there would be some of us that could be drived, described presently as walking in fellowship and would presently be described as spiritual. But The Bible says, build up or restore. Those of you who are spiritual, build up or restore. Are there people that need restoration? Are, are there people that need to be built back up? My point being, we could go on and on with this, these examples But John gave lots of those examples, right? As we went through this letter, we saw these different things that said, if you have the capacity to minister to the needs of people in your life, and if God is in the business of sacrificing himself for people, that was his character, to give of himself without limit... For the well-being of others. If he's the one, if his spirit is the one directing in your life, are there going to be limits to how much you're willing to do for others? Not while he's leading. Now, you may put limits on it from, in your humanity, but the spirit of God doesn't put limits on those things. And so he went through a number of different examples like that. If you're presently loving the world, if you're presently captivated by the world, in that moment are you presently enjoying fellowship with the father and so he all of those examples that we went through but with what big picture point in mind the big picture point was that i hope that you realize that apart from living life in intimate close fellowship with him you're going to miss out you're going to miss out you're not going to experience life the way i intended so you're either going to do that with God or you're not going to do that with God. The choice is ultimately yours. You're going to include him or exclude him. Those are the two options. And so John has been saying, you know this principle now. I've, I've taught it to you before. I'm reminding you of it now. And he's saying, I hope that you'll apply. I hope that you'll apply this to your life. Practically speaking, you'll allow this to become true of your everyday life. That you would allow it to be true that this present fellowship represents your manner of living. That you don't go through life apart from him. That you go through life with him. And so that has been the point. So now John is going to end this letter with this last verse that we haven't covered in chapter 5, verse 21. And he's going to end it by presenting one final contrast to drive home his point. Now he's established a bunch of different contrasts where he says you can't be walking in darkness and at the same time be walking in light. You can't be walking in unrighteousness and at the same time being walking in God's righteousness. Life, death, light, darkness, righteousness, unrighteousness. Being in love with the world or being in love with him all of these different contrasts. Well, he's going to end with this one final contrast, but the final word that he's going to use in this book is this word, amen. Amen, which means may, may it be so or let it be so. So that's how I got this title, let it be so. Because he's saying, may this be so. I, I've spent this whole letter encouraging you to allow this to be true presently, experientially, and intimately in your life, this fellowship with God. Now, may it be so, or let it be so. So if you haven't turned there already, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, we're gonna work our way through this last little book, or this last little verse, in this relatively small book of 1 John that we've spent the last 47 weeks on. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 18 because that's where sort of the summary of this book begins. He talked about these things that we know, and he's talking about knowing these in a cognitive type of a way, but we know them in a very cognitive but yet reliable way because the source of that knowledge was God himself. And so we pick up in verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, meaning sin is never a manifestation of God's Spirit, working inside of us. God doesn't produce sin in our lives. So if we have sin in our lives, it doesn't mean we're not God's child. It just means presently, we're not being directed by his spirit because his spirit would never produce sin in our lives. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Meaning that while we're walking in fellowship with him, we're not under the influence of the wicked one. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. That's true positionally, but it's also true Practically, we're of God when we're walking by means of his spirit. The whole world, though, in contrast, lies under the sway of the wicked one. So which one is swaying you at any point in time was, John's, was what John was trying to get at. We are of God, meaning we're under the influence, we're under the sway of God, but the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And the point there was you could at any point in time be influenced by one or the other, but as children of God, with God's Spirit inside of us, we should be influenced by God himself, his Spirit working through us. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. And what came with that? What came with that is he has given us an understanding the ability through his spirit working in our lives to have understanding that we otherwise could not have, to be wired for sound, to have spiritual discernment in matters that without the new birth, we were incapable of understanding those things. For what ultimate purpose that we may know him when we saw that that was a change to the word know, now not being cognitive knowledge there, but being experiential knowledge, that we may experience him who is true. And we are in him who is true positionally and practically when we're living life under the direction of his spirit in his son jesus christ this is the true god and eternal life now verse 21 little children keep yourselves from idols keep yourselves from idols let's dig into this we're going to celebrate the lord's supper at the end of the service so i'd like to move through this relatively quickly now at first glance you look at this last verse, little children, keep yourselves from idols, and it seems disconnected from the other three summary statements that we saw in verse eighteen, nineteen, and verses eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. But when we look at verse twenty-one, it in fact is very connected. If if we examine it and as we dive into this a little bit deep more deeply, we're gonna see that it actually serves as the perfect summary to this letter and you may not see it now, but I hope you see it by the time we get done here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now little children, appropriate what an appropriate manner of addressing his audience for the final time. Why is that? Because if you've been with us you'd see that little children has been used nine times throughout this book. And so little children was used to refer by Is used by John to refer to his audience many times and here's all the different references if that's something that you were interested in or cared about. So he refers to his audience over and over as little children and what do we get from that? This is the takeaway that you should have from that form of address is that John wasn't looking at them as just sort of random people that he had no interest or concern or history with. He was looking at them in a familial kind of a way, uh, in a very loving paternal type of a way. So what John has to say, once again, it flows out of a heart of compassion and is spoken from the perspective of one who loves them. Now think about that when you think about the Word of God. Do you ever take time to read the Word of God first and foremost? Is this something that you'd ever pull off of the shelf or go get from your car or pull up on your cell phone? And, and if it is, when you, when you open this, I would ask you to do this. I think it will be of great benefit to you As you open these words, whether it's the first words in Genesis or the last words in Revelation, ask yourself or think of this point. This is written to me by one who desperately loves me. He's intensely interested in my well-being and he wrote this for my benefit. He wrote this to me to help me. He didn't write this to me to judge me. He didn't write this to me to hold me down. He didn't write this to me to try to make me feel shame or guilt or regret or remorse, though those are natural things that sometimes you feel as you see that you've been wasting your life or living life in a manner that doesn't bring him glory. Those are feelings you might feel, but he didn't write it for that purpose. He wrote it for your benefit. He wrote it with a heart of compassion he wrote it because he loves you so much. And I'll tell you what, that will change the way you take in and, and digest the word of God when you think about it that way. So then we have little children, an appropriate way to end this letter, keep. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, but let's look at keep here. So this, again, it seems a little bit disconnected from verse 20, but when you remember that John has consistently been utilizing contrast to communicate his underlying points and to distinguish truth from error, you naturally look back at what has been said before, and you say, what was it that he's contrasting against now? So look back to verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. Now, this is the part to catch, that we may know him who is true we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. So what do we see there in verse 20? Three times this emphasis being placed on truth. Now it's going to be contrasted to something else, which is error. Keep yourselves from idols. And we're going to see that's a shorthand way of referring to keep yourself from things that are not true. False worship is what he's ultimately going to be getting at. So, verse 20, it identified the Father as him who is true. It identified Jesus as the true God and the means by which we access eternal life or God's kind of living. This is the true God. This is how we access the true God, Jesus, is how we do that, and eternal life. That's how we get a hold of God's quality and manner of living. The only way we could have that is through a new birth and through then God's spirit producing in and through us a quality of living in time and then ultimately in eternity that is completely different and distinct from the manner of living that was associated with who we were in Adam by our natural birth. And so as we're born again into God's family and we experience that, We have this opportunity through then that change wrought by the Spirit of God to experience God's kind of living, God's quality of living, God's manner of living, not because we produce it in our life, but because God through His Spirit produces it through our lives when we're yielded instruments and vessels in His hands for Him to work with. And that's the contrast though here is that John is saying that is what is true and the flip side or the reverse of that coin is then keep yourself from what is false. If spending time intimately in fellowship with what is true, if leaning into that, if being occupied in your thinking with that, if having your mind stayed on that, the truth of God, then at the same time you can't be having your mind fixed on or be chasing after things that are false. And that's what he's really getting at with that reference to idols. So he's going to, present this contrast between the true God and false idols. Now, when you think of this word keep, it's defined as this. Keep yourself from idols. Well, to guard, keep watch over, protect against, or this is my favorite here, avoid. Avoid. Now, you're only going to avoid something if you're on the lookout for it, so it kind of all goes together. Unless you're keeping a watch out for something, are you really going to avoid it? If you're, if you're not looking for danger, are you going to avoid it at all? So John is just reminding them, this isn't going to come naturally. Living a life that is in union with the one who is true, in intimate fellowship with him, that's not going to happen accidentally. That's going to happen because you're on guard. You're being intentional about saying, I don't want to live life apart from you, God. You're going to ask yourself at different times during the day, you're going to say, am I including you, God, in what I'm doing here? As you're thinking certain things and you're making certain des- decisions, you're going to say, am I letting you be a part of this? Sometimes if you're on guard or you're on the watch, you're looking out for something. Sometimes when that's true, you're going to be looking at a certain thing you just said or a certain thing you just thought or a certain thing you just did and you're going to say, is that, is that God, Spirit, producing that in my life right now? Sometimes you might have others in your life that remind you of that. Blessed are the wounds of a friend, right? Now, if they're saying it in love, with a a desire to point you back to Jesus Christ, it can be incredibly helpful to you. It's not uncommon for my wife to say, I think you need to pray about that. (laughs) Why? Why? because sometimes you're so wrapped up in your own thinking your own analysis of something that you can't see that what is obvious to somebody who knows you well and loves you that that's not the spirit of God producing that couldn't be because the spirit of God would never produce something like that but you've whitewashed it in your own mind In your own mind, you've justified it. You've sanctified it. Sometimes you'll even be so obnoxious as to pray about it and sanctify it through false and fake and phony prayer. Oh, none of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, all right. Okay. Where you've already fully made up your mind about something, When you're praying, you're not praying, looking for God's leading or direction. You just want to be able to say, well, I prayed about it. You had already fully fixed your mind on what you were going to do, regardless of any input from him. And now you want to sanctify it by telling people that you've prayed about it? Telling yourself that you've prayed about it? We're so easily deceived. I guess that's the point. So keep yourself. You're going to have to be on watch. You're going to have to be on guard. You're going to have to have a desire to avoid repeating the same mistakes of the past. And in this instance, John is saying, live life with, in close union with, pursue or chase after or draw nearer to what is true and avoid what is false. That's the idea. So keep yourself from, which means to avoid, idols or things in this instance, we're going to see his primary focus on things that are false. So this is a long thing. Uh, it's actually somewhat tedious. I hesitate to even read it to you, but there's a grammatical thing here that I think there's a point to make from it, and I'll actually make a point. So even if you doze doze away for this, that's fine. There's a point, though. Now, when it comes to grammar here, John doesn't use the present tense to indicate that this action represents a present state of being or action in process. So that's, this word keep here, it's not in the... Present tense. Many of the things he said have been in the present tense as we've gone through this letter because he's saying, Allow this to presently describe your manner of living. Allow this to represent your present state of being. And while this does represent your present state of being, this won't represent your present state of being. So he's done a lot of that in this letter, but he doesn't do it here. He's also used the perfect tense. So, he's not using that here either. The perfect tense to indicate that the action has occurred in the past with ongoing effects in the present. So, he's used that in the past in this letter too, but he's not using it here. He instead uses the aorist tense, which focuses on the occurrence of an action at a specific point in time without any indication of whether it presently continues or will continue in the future. So, you're saying, whoop dee doo. And this is ultimately the point that I think is valuable from from that observation. There is no guarantee that any particular believer at any particular time will heed the following warning. He's saying, keep yourselves from things that are false or idols. But there's no guarantee. It It wasn't some kind of a... It doesn't necessarily say, this represents your present state of being. It could, but it doesn't automatically... It doesn't represent a decision that you made at some point in time in the past and now there's this ongoing effect on your life in the present. He's saying this is a decision that you're going to have to make over and over again. It's not a one and done kind of a thing. There is a need for ongoing volitional choices. The idea is keep on doing this. So do this and keep on doing this. Keep yourself from things that are false. But it's also in the active voice. There's some observations from this too. The action of the verb is being performed by the subject. The subject here is the assumed you. So if you were to reread this, sorry kids, young people that hate English and grammar, I'm I'm sorry for that here this morning, but maybe it'll help you sometime and you'll come back and say, hey, thank you so much for telling me about the assumed you. It changed my life. but he's saying little children and so that's the subject but then if you're just going to take this phrase keep yourself from idols you put in you you keep yourselves from idols you must choose and continue to choose this action God doesn't force you to do this or do this to you that's what's valuable about seeing that this is the active voice this is something that you have to choose and then you have to choose it again and then choose it again and choose it again now, it's not about, and I want to make this very clear, and John has made this very clear in his letter, it's not about focusing on what is evil or focusing on what is false and saying, I've got to be on the lookout for what is false. I've got to be on the lookout for what is false. I've got to be on the lookout for what is false so that I can avoid it. John has consistently say, said that while you're on the lookout and looking at what is true, having your gaze fixed on him He's going to direct you in such a way that he'll protect you and guard you from what is false. You're going to end up having the wrong focus if you start focusing on trying to identify or find everything that's false. Now, does that mean you don't have an intellect? No, you do. Are there times that things are going to jump out to you as false? Yeah, but what's the number one thing that's going to make that jump out to you? being familiar with God's word, because you've studied what's true, because you know what's true, what's false will jump out. It'll jump, be very clear to you. The second thing is that it's the spirit of God that provides enlightenment and discernment in our lives. So when I'm able to identify something as false, is that because I was on the lookout for what's false or because God gave me that discernment through his spirit as I was looking to what was true, the author and finisher of my faith, or look into his word, your word is truth. So that's just a little aside. Be careful about that. When you exercise, though, a positive volitional response to his instruction, what's his instruction? It's to live life with me. Stay joined to me. Seek after me. Lean into me. Involve me. Trust me. Follow me. Walk by means of my spirit. So as you follow his instruction, which involves a positive volitional choice on your part, he makes success possible through his enablement and his empowerment. And I think it's really important to understand that. You appropriate victory that's available. You don't produce the outcome. Your natural temptation is always to focus on self-production. I need to produce a certain way of living in my life. God says, without me, you can do nothing. You can't even get the toilet paper on the roll facing the right direction. I saw a thing with the toilet paper on the roll facing backwards, and it said, you savage. (laughs) You can't even get that straight. You can't even remember why you went to the grocery store. Oh, it's just me. Okay. Okay. Okay, all right. You you really want to take responsibility for this success? Come on. It takes me thirty five minutes to put new string on the weed whip, the weed whacker. Stacy said it's not a weed whip; it's a weed whacker. Weed whacker. I don't want to take responsibility for enabling or empowering success in my Christian life. I thank God that he took me out of that equation. He just said, just trust me. Get your eye on me. Make a decision to get your focus off yourself and get your focus onto me. Let me, allow me to make the changes in your life through the power of my spirit. I don't need you to do it. I need you to let me do it and then just stand back in amazement as I make those changes. We gotta keep moving. Imperative mood. I haven't gotten into some of this grammar as much lately, but it's important here. So again, it's not something that was fixed at a point in time with ongoing results. It's something that may or may not be true. You have to make decisions over and over. Am I gonna trust the Lord, let him direct in my life so that I can keep myself or or guard myself or avoid the things that are false in my life? Active voice, God's not gonna force this on me. He's not gonna make me do this. Imperative mood, this is critical to my spiritual success. God gave this instruction intending that it would be heeded because it's critical to your spiritual success. When, when an instruction in this mood, the imperative m- mood, some say the, the command mood, but I like to look at it more in the sense of it's critical instruction being given with the intention that it would be heeded. But when it's directed at believer, believers, it takes on this parental flavor. It's always to, intended to benefit you because God is always for you. It's always intended to benefit you. So when God says this to you through John, keep yourselves from idols, from things that are false. Why? By clinging to what is true as laid out in verse 20. It's because it's for your benefit and also because it's critical to the desired outcome of the entire letter. The desired outcome of the entire letter was that you would enjoy fellowship with God. You can't do that unless you'll heed this instruction to avoid what is false by clinging to what is true, pursuing and chasing after what is true, desiring to draw nearer to and be close to what is true. And that's the the ultimate desired outcome of the entire letter is fellowship with the Father. He said that in verse 3. For what objective in mind, that your joy may be full, from verse 4. With what outcome in mind, that we would live lives that would be well-pleasing to him as is covered through other parts of the letter. As John says, there's a purpose in this so that I could, as you are living a life of closeness with me and involving me in your life, as there's this intimacy with me and as I'm leading and directing your life, then my spirit will be able to produce a manner of living that is right. It's defined not by sinfulness, but by what is right, by righteousness. Not because I'm trying to make myself right, but because it's a byproduct of this intimate fellowship. I hope, I hope, Through all of these lessons, that's something that has sunk in with you. So then we move on. Keep what? Keep yourselves. And I have an observation or two on this. Keep yourselves. The focus is on your own walk of faith or present present Christian living and decisions you make to help guard against danger. Now, what is it not on? What is the focus not on? It's not on the lives of others or improper dependence on others to protect you. It says keep yourselves, guard yourselves, avoid yourselves, things that are false. How do you do that? By paying attention to where your focus is at. By determining if you're going to include or exclude God from your life. By determining whether you're going to lean on your own understanding or you're going to walk by means of the Spirit of God. Or you're going to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, if you're trusting the Lord with all your heart, you're not leaning on your own understanding. If you're walking by means of the Spirit, you're not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. If you're including God in your decisions and in your thinking and in your and in your speech and in your life, if that's true, then you're not at that same time excluding Him. But the focus is on you. You're not responsible for me. I hope you're praying for me, but you're not responsible for me. You're responsible for yourself. You're not responsible for your spouse. Isn't that a weight off your shoulders? You're responsible for yourself. They're responsible to respond to the Lord. You're responsible to trust the Lord. Either you're going to trust them or you're not. It has nothing to do with your spouse. nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with your annoying neighbor. And I have one. Nobody else is going to do this for you. Though God may use others to warn and remind you of spiritual danger. So he does use people in your lives, but the instruction here is to, you gotta make this choice between truth and what's true and what's false. Between living life close to him or living life apart from him. From including him or from excluding him. You have to make that choice. Nobody else can make that choice for you. I used to have a paper out when I was young. And as I'd walk through in the wintertime, it seemed like I recall this conversation happening. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I, I started that paper out when I was quite young. Hesitate to put an age on it. Maybe I was 9 or 10 years old. But I got to know all the people in the neighborhoods surrounding our, our home as I would deliver these papers morning after morning. But there was one guy who didn't get the paper, but he was all, always out in the morning. His name was Lori. And Lori was had a really thick ethnic accent. I'm not good enough to tell you which it was. Scandinavian of some kind. Real thick accent and he would always be out shoveling or going for a walk or doing something in the morning. Very often he would stop and talk to me. But one of the things that he used to say over and over, Gus, nobody else will do it for you. You've got to do it for yourself. And you think about that now on a human level that's work, work ethic. You could apply it to a number of different things. On a spiritual level, that can be a real problem because it's a life of dependence on God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's what characterizes Christianity. Yet when it comes to living the Christian life and talking about what does it mean to have a positive, volitional response to what God puts right in front of you, he says victory is available. Living life with me is available any time that you would include me. Success is right in front of you. But what does it mean to make a decision, choose you this day whom you will serve? You have to make a choice. Nobody else can make that choice for you. That's the long-winded thing I'm getting at here. You have to make that choice. Will I involve him, include him, trust him, depend on him, rest in him, lean into him, however you want to put it? Will I choose to get my focus and my gaze off of everything else and get it on him? Nobody else does that for you. So I love that that's built into this word yourself. The tendency is always to focus on others, and it's not helpful. The focus needs to be on, will I let God make the changes he wants to make in my life by getting my eyes off of myself and my circumstances and the world and my spouse and my job and my kids and get my eyes on him? Get my focus on him. Now keep yourself from what? From idols. This took us a while to get to this. Keep yourselves from idols. Implied in this is the concept of worshiping false gods. So that's where we get keep yourself from the things that are false in contrast to the truth of God that was revealed in verse 20 three different times. So in contrast to that, keep yourself from worshiping or from investing in or relying on or being influenced by the things that are false but from idols here referring to worshiping false god now worship involves feelings or expressions of reverence and adoration so if you're worshiping something you're adoring something if you're adoring something it's to give something or someone an elevated or exalted status when you adore something you're lifting it up you're, you're exalting it putting it in a higher position so then, you think about idols. Keep yourself from idols. Some of you are saying, "What a, what a wasted service!" There's no idols in my life. I don't worship idols. I worship Jesus Christ. And, and in some ways, that's that's true in a literal sense. So let's talk about literal idols. You don't have to study the Old Testament long to see that worshiping false gods was a real problem for men and women of faith throughout history. So it is true that in your life you're not worshiping the sun perhaps or you're not worshiping all of these different gods that you can find as you go through the Old Testament. Baal, Asherah, those kind of gods. These were actual gods that the pagan nations made images of, symbolic images of these gods that they worshipped. And that's what they exalted. That's what they lifted up. That's what they put their confidence in. False gods. The Egyptians had many. So many they couldn't hardly keep track of them, I would think. And so that was a lot of what was being taught even through the plagues that swept through Egypt is that Many of the plagues were symbolic of a type of god that the Egyptians worshiped and it was God's way of saying there is only one god and that's me Jehovah God there is none other I alone and there is no other And so he used those plagues to attack these different things that the Egyptians actually worshiped So in in a, a literal sense that was a real problem in the Old Testament where they had to deal with this influence of the nations around them to worship actual physical false gods or idols. Worshiping wood, stone, and metal idols was also common in John's days. So keep yourselves from idols. There was a literal sense to this with John. And this is what John is getting at in 1 John chapter 2. We'll get to that in a second. But much like today, believers were tempted to conform to the world around them. Now, if the world around them was worshiping these actual wood, stone, uh, precious metals, these idols, was there a temptation for them to do the same thing? Yes. They were tempted to conform to the world. To conform to the world included worshiping the world around them. So in 1 John 2.15, he's told them, do not love the world or the things of the world. Well, what was one of the things of the world? One of the things of the world was false idol worship. And so that was something that was an issue in John's day, a little bit less in our day. It's less common in Christian, and I use that term loosely, Christian countries to worship figures intended to represent another god. That's much less common. Now, people are tempted to worship religion, not necessarily idols in the sense of actual physical objects. But sometimes the associated symbols they end up worshiping the symbols as a part of what they believe is Christianity. They're focusing on actually lifting up and exalting the symbols above the creator, above God himself. Sometimes the human traditions that are associated with religion, those end up being objects of worship. Sometimes we place our human traditions above our faith in Christ or our worship of Christ himself. So But in our country, it is true, generally speaking. It's not literal idols that's the problem. It's figurative idols. So when you say, however, when the definition of idol is expanded to include anything or anyone that is elevated or exalted, prioritized is what you're really getting at that, above God in your life, it becomes obvious that every believer is susceptible to idols or false worship. Now, what are some of the examples of that? Well, first you need to remember that idols are usually good things. They're not evil things. The things we exalt in our lives, they're not terrible things. They're usually good things. And they can include one's possessions. You can even have your car, your house, even your yard. I mean, not me, but some people. Uh, Your yard can be your idol. Wealth, your body, your, your physical abilities, your intellect, your mental abilities, theological knowledge. How many of you have ever made that an idol? You know a lot about the word of God and that's something that you start to put in a place of greater importance than your relationship with God himself, living life with God himself. You're putting it above intimate fellowship with God himself and you go around with this egomania about how much you know about spiritual things while you're not being led by the spirit in your own life at all. How about giftedness, your health, relationships, your children? Can children become an idol? They can become an idol when you put them in a place of importance above God himself. Are children important? Yes, you're all lovely. You're all very lovely and dear and precious. And I don't even even mean that sarcastically. I actually mean that. We're so thankful for you. We are thankful for every child that is here or young person that's here. It's a blessing to have you among us. But you're not more important than God himself. You shouldn't be the gods of our homes where our homes revolve around you instead of revolving around him. And I got to tell you, it's really easy in modern American families for our lives to revolve around our children instead of revolving around God They need to revolve around God and then our children need to be important because they've been entrusted to us by God. But not the other way around. Now they become false idols when they take a place of priority ahead of fellowship with him who is true. It's a false idol when something takes a place of priority ahead of him who is true from verse 20. Now I'll say this. Don't be too proud to see that you're susceptible to being influenced by things that are false or worshiping idols in your life don't think that even the wisest men are susceptible to this it was king solomon himself the wisest man to, man to ever live it was him who introduced idolatry into israel it wasn't someone else it was him through his intermarriage with foreign wives He was the one primarily responsible in his day. Idolatry can creep into the lives of even the wisest and and best intentioned of people. So don't think that you're somehow immune from it. That's just as an aside. Now, how can you spot a false idol? Well, ask yourself questions. Here's some hints. Ask yourself these questions. Is this thing, is it more important to me than he is? Next question. Is it interfering with time spent with him? Is it promoting the inclusion or the exclusion of him in my life? Is it becoming more important to me than people? Which is your ministry. That's the ministry God gave every single one of you. A ministry to people. Is this thing becoming more important to me than that? Now sometimes, if you're asked just one of these questions, you'd say, well, no, of course not. Except for then you get the phone call. Hey, can you make time to get together? No, I don't have time for that. Well, why not? not? Well, because I filled my life with all this other stuff. So you think that this is true, but it's actually not true. You think that you're not affected, but you are. And that's why ask yourself these questions. Is it blocking my view of the Lord? You see, false idols are like an eclipse of the sun. When you have an eclipse of the sun, the moon gets in the way. When false things in your life get in the way of God, then they're a false idol. Then that's a problem. When something gets between you and God's light, then darkness creeps in. That's why it's such a problem to allow something to eclipse God in your life. If something darkens or blots out the light in your life by getting in the way of that, it's a real problem for you. And that's what a fitting way for John to end this letter as he's been talking about don't do that. He's saying live life in intimacy with him. Don't let anything get in the way of that. So whatever is blocking that light is an idol. Now, why are idols dangerous? Really quickly here. Because false worship destroys and interferes with your fellowship with God. Remember that the letter primarily promotes the full joy that is accessed exclusively through intimate fellowship with him. John has told them about what it is to know God. And when he said that, in verse 20, to know him in an experiential and practical and intimate way. He's been saying that throughout the whole letter. So that's why it's such a problem. That's why it's such a fitting way for John to have ended this letter. is because he's bringing out that point. He hopes they will settle for nothing less than growing in him, depending on him, and serving him as they live life with him. So he's saying you have to keep yourself from the things that are false and Draw near to the things that are true. Live life in intimacy with him. There is no life to be found in worshiping anyone or anything else beside him. So do you see this? Do you see that apart from intimate fellowship with him, there is no real life? Are you willing to settle for something less? That's the question to ask yourself. If he says, fullness of joy is found through intimate fellowship with me. Are you willing to say, I'll take something less, I'll take a half dose of joy then? Because I'd prefer not to live life close to you. Do you really want a half glass of joy? You ever seen kids that don't get pop very often? (laughs) I see it because we don't let our kids have pop very often sometimes they'll be at an event where there is pop and they'll say can we have a root beer you can have half of a root beer with your sister you can split half with your sister no child wants half a glass of root beer they want the full measure measure Jen where are you measure apparently it's not measure it's measure thanks for all your help too by the way with my pronunciation of words who wants a half glass that's what john has been getting at full joy is found in him and through experiencing life with him will you choose to include him and enjoy that close intimate fellowship with him has john said these things we write to you that your joy may be full that sounds pretty good doesn't it I pray you are convinced because the last word, look at your Bible here, the last word of this book is amen, meaning let it be so. That was our title this morning and what an appropriate way to end the letter. Well, now we're gonna do celebrate the Lord.